We continue this morning a series on worry, and I want to start with a quote from a commentary. Jesus' sayings on worry about are not, excuse me, Jesus' sayings on worry about the necessities of life such as food or clothing are not naive or romantic statements that overlook the life and death struggle for existence many face. Rather, even the acquiring of such necessities must be related to the overwhelming reality of God's reign and one's commitment to it. And then that author goes on to say this, worry is a debilitating anxiety that is antithetical to trust in God. We've been talking about worry, and the first week we talked about how it's something that we need to take seriously, that it is a sin to worry, that it is something that Jesus has commanded, not just stated it was a good idea to give up, but commanded that we give up. And last week we talked about how worry is oftentimes driven by by thinking that if we give it up, then something bad is going to happen to us. Or if we give it up, then something good won't happen to us. And, and we talked about how kind of at the root of, of our worry is is just this belief that that we need to take care of things and worry is a part of that. And Jesus showed us that worry doesn't help anything. And he said, look at the birds. They don't worry and yet they have the food that they need. And I think this morning we need to take even one more step deeper into the root of worry. Because I think that we trust in worry sometimes more than we trust in God. And I think what we'll see today is true in me. That when I am trusting God more, the more I learn to have faith in God, the more I look at God and say, you're going to take care of this, you always have taken care of this, the less and less I need to worry. And I don't know, you can just picture the person that you knew who worried the least in your life, and I'll I'll bet they fit into one of two categories. They fit into the category of just not caring about things, and, and they just didn't have really a purpose in life, and we don't want to probably exemplify that. Or they were people who had tremendous trust in God. I could sit here and talk about people that I've known that it's just like, how are you not freaking out over this. I mean, how is this not bothering you? How do you how do you function when life seems so bad? Aren't you just waking up every day thinking, "Man, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried." And I'm like, "No, because God is always taking care of me and always will take care of me." And I think at the very heart of worry is a distrust in God. I think that if you were to look at the moments in your life when you worry the most, it would be moments when you are not trusting God. I would, in fact, offer that when you come to church and you are singing songs to Jesus, sometimes probably you come in here worried about things, and as soon as you start to sing and you start to focus on the attributes of God and the gifts of God, then all of a sudden those things start to go to the wayside. You forget about the cares of the world because you are being wrapped up in your trust for God. And Jesus is going to, this morning, in the verses we are going to look at, Matthew 6, 28 through 30, Jesus is going to really say, here is how you can know that you can trust God. And here is how you can know that placing trust in yourself is not as good as trusting in the God of the universe. 
I think what Jesus is going to get to this morning is, is really, it's going to help us hopefully get to a place where when we think about worry and we say what we talked about last week, you know, this worry is kind of helping me get by and if I worry enough, then I'll have enough money because I'll do enough work and I'll, my kids will get good grades because I'll make sure that I'm doing the right stuff. I think what we'll see today takes it even a step further and Jesus is going to be like, hey, stop trusting in your worry more than you trust in me. And this is how he says it to us in Matthew 6, 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Now this is fascinating because for a first century reader, clothes would have been just a necessity of life. When we worry about our clothes, most often we're just worried about how they look. And here's the cool part. Here's this is don't shut me off yet and go, well, I'm going to keep worrying about how I look. Because actually, Jesus, while talking to a culture that would have worried about clothes because of the necessity of clothes, because of staying warm, you know, not dying, all that stuff that we hardly ever think about in America, he, he actually illustrates the need not to worry about the necessity of clothes in a way that talks about the good-lookingness of clothes. He really, it's interesting, I don't know what the early people would have thought of this because he like jumps into an analogy that really, I think, works better for you and I than it would have worked for a farmer listening to the Sermon on the Mount in which this is a part 2,000 years ago. They would have been thinking like, and we'll see this in a second, Jesus, I don't care what I look like. I just, I just need a shirt, man. Like, but he uses an example that I think fits really well with the American culture. And it's really interesting that here, Jesus uses the term, see how. And it's not just a term that's like, you know, kind of notice, kind of look at flowers. It's, it's more of a term, and this is the first time in this passage, where Jesus is saying like, I want you to like learn and look at and focus on. I want you to pay attention to the flowers of the field. And then he says this, they do not labor or spin. This is to say that they do not work or prepare in order to have clothes. And I, I find this very fascinating. The, the language labor and spin is actually the language that would be uh, for men and for women. It would be for men who labor and women who at that time, this is not a sexist comment, but at that time would have done the spinning. They would have been making the clothes. And so Jesus in some way wants to make this universal to all of us. And uh, actually, as you look up here at our birds, I, I try to be a pastor that wants that gets manly men into his church. And then like we, we prepared this stage design with these flowers and the birds. And almost the first thing I said was to Bryn was like, Look, the next time we have anything on stage, it needs to be more manly. And the next sermon series is called uh, Planks and Specks, so you men can keep coming to church. But I think Jesus like wanted to, I, maybe, I don't know, but like, hey, hey, men, by the way, this applies to you too. I know you don't like flowers or birds because you're men, but that was sexist probably, but uh, flowers or birds because you're men, but this applies to you too because the flowers, they don't go out and they don't work in the field and they don't come back and they don't sew the clothes. But yet, in verse 29, I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now you need to understand, this would have just gone right to the heart of the Jewish people. For them, and even for us, if we pay attention to the biblical account of Solomon's life, he was like the wealthiest of wealthy people. 
I mean, you can think like it's like Jesus uses Bill Gates or John Rockefeller, who they say uh, is the richest man of all time, given inflation and other factors. But Solomon, when you read about his wealth, probably blew those guys out of the water. And so Jesus says, a really fascinating statement, he says, hey, the flowers, they're not working at looking good, but Solomon never looked as good as them. I'm going to read a long section just because it, I think you have to understand just like the amount of wealth that, that Solomon had in order to understand like what Jesus is trying to get out here. And so 1 Kings 10, 14 through 27, this is about as long of a passage as I like to read, but just pay attention to this. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That means nothing to you. It's 25 tons of gold annually. Yeah, that's a good amount of money better than my salary here at the church, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minutes of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with King Solomon to hear wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 14,000 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also had with, with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the foothills. That's like rich, right? I mean, you're bringing in the big bucks and everybody's giving you gifts and your annual salary is 25 tons of gold, but you don't even need your annual salary because people are just bringing you free stuff anyway. And you have a city for chariots. That's pretty good, right? And you own a baboon. I mean, come like you've arrived at that point. I mean, you're like, hey, check out my baboon. We say, like, check out my dog, cat. Like, look at my baboon. Or where's your chariots? Oh, they're in their city. You know, like, uh, who lives there? I'm not just my horses and my chariots. I mean, and the people that take care. I mean, you're like super rich, and he's getting these clothes from all over the world. And he just, he's got to look good. I mean, this, I mean, rich people always look better than us regular folk, right? I mean, they're always manicured. They always look good. And, and Jesus makes this statement like, The flowers of the field are clothed better than Solomon, despite the fact that they make no effort to do so. I want to put a picture up on on the board for you, and you can decide which one of these looks more beautiful. This is the richest, best-looking people in our country wearing their clothes, or a field full of beautiful flowers. We're working on getting this place darker so that you can actually see. But I mean, uh, if, you, if you were to get online and you are to Google flowers of the fields and like 
red dress, I mean, red carpet attire, you're going to be like, wow, the fields are the things that I want to look at forever and ever and ever. I mean, the fields are the things that people paint and the things that people find beautiful, not the clothes that the richest people in the world wear. In fact, sometimes we make fun of the clothes that rich people wear. I mean, it's like that is ridiculous. But nobody goes out into a meadow, looks at flowers exploding in front of them and says, oh, that's so goofy looking. Let's go. I mean, rather go back to see a city, you know. I mean, nobody says that. And this is Jesus' point. It doesn't matter how much money somebody has. God has still clothed the flowers more beautifully than all of it. And then in Matthew 6.30, he says this, if, this, if that is how God clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Here's the thing that Jesus just gets to the heart of. Plants are more fragile than birds and far more short-lived than humans. And I want to point you, uh, your attention to of the field because he's not saying like this is a cultivated garden. This isn't like somebody's gone out and they've worked really hard. This is just the wild stuff growing. And it's more beautiful than almost anything else we can look at. And here's the, the really key kind of thing to this passage right here, just that statement. Grass at that time was used to light the ovens. It wasn't used to like put in your front yard and make sure it looks good and, you know, plant some flowers. It was used, its primary purpose was you'd pick it and you'd throw it into the fire in order to heat up your food. And Jesus is like, grass doesn't last very long. It's not very important. And yet God is the one who gives it the clothes that it needs. And the clothes are the most beautiful things that maybe exist on our planet. He looks at us and he uses this greater, lesser mentality that he has used throughout this line of reasoning that was common for Jewish people, but it's not common for us. And it's like, look, if God is willing to clothe the grass, something of little value, then obviously he is willing to clothe you. He is willing to take care of you. He is willing to give you the things that you need. And really the first thing, I mean, if we're going to get down to the heart of worry, We're going to look at Jesus' tip here. His tip is like, hey, you don't need to worry about the things you're wearing. I would say you don't even need to worry about what people think of you. You don't need to worry about how good looking you are, things we actually worry about right today, things they would not have worried about, but things we worry. You don't need to worry about that because look at the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. It is more beautiful than even the richest person in their fancy clothing with all their gold jewelry. You see, we sit around and we're like, mm, is God really going to, is he really going to give me the stuff I need? But he's giving it to grass. You mow the stuff every week. If you don't think you're more important than grass, then, then you should never mow your lawn again because you're a murderer. But obviously, right? I mean, isn't that, let me tweet it or something. I mean, that's the truth. Like, you're a killer if we're not more important than grass. But we are obviously far more important to God. And yet he clothes the grass of the field with the most beautiful things on earth. The things that you buy for your spouse, the things that you buy for people you love, the things that you buy for people that are mourning or celebrating flowers. Now this last part, little faith, gets, it's the very root of all of it. 
I mean, when we're standing and we're looking at the birds, thinking about how God feeds them despite their stupidity, and, and we're looking at the grass of the field, and we're thinking about how God gives them clothes despite the fact that they are here today and gone tomorrow. They are not eternal at all. It all boils down to this, this thing called faith, this trust in God. Little faith is a favorite term of Jesus that's recorded in the book of Matthew, and it's... Uh, found just one other time, I believe, elsewhere, and it is always directed at Jesus' disciples. And so when Jesus says little faith, he isn't saying like, hey, you guys aren't my true followers. He isn't saying you're not Christians. You're not, you don't really love God. This is directed and aimed at people who do love God, who do care about God, who, who are following Jesus, who have given up everything to follow Jesus. And he often uses this expression, little faith. And it doesn't really seem fair that it's, that it's used for, you know, the guys who would change the world by starting the church and things like that. I, I would want to be, every time, I, if I was Peter and Jesus like, hey, you have little faith, I'd be like, yeah, well, there's like 5,000 people from my city that haven't followed you, Jesus. But he always directs this at his disciples. And it is always used when fear or worry or anxiety is at the center of the disciples' lives. Matthew 8, 26, Matthew 14, 31, Matthew 16, 8, places you can see that. It's always connected to worry and fear. And this story that I want to read you from Matthew 8, 23 through 27, I think is a story that really demonstrates our worry and how it is so unimportant and how it goes away the more faith that we have. Then he got into the boat talking about Jesus and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They're pretty worried at this point. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In Mark 4, 38, it says it this way, when the disciples are having this conversation, they say, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we drown? Isn't that a logical question? I mean, Jesus, you're on a boat with us, and don't, you're not scared, you don't look worried about us, it doesn't seem like you care about us right now. Don't you care if we drown? I think that's how we think sometimes. You know, for those of us who are Christians, we say like, yeah, God can take care of me. Sure, he can put down the winds and the waves. But does he really care? Does he really care about me? And I think what Jesus is saying when he says little faith, both in our passage this morning and in Matthew 8 is, come on. Come on, if you know me at all, you know who I am, then you have to know that I care. I mean, if I care about the grass of the field that is thrown in the fire, that's its main purpose, then obviously I will care about you, an eternal being, a being that I created in my image that will last forever and ever and ever. The book of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
And I believe like in the book of James, faith here is not just a, a mental grasping of the fact that Jesus kind of cares for us, but it's a firm conviction to the truth, a surrender to the truth, as one author said, and conduct emanating from that surrender. In some, faith shows itself genuine by a changed life. And I think Jesus is looking and saying, look, you've, if you're my follower and you know me and you love me and you've been around me and you've heard from me and you understand the principles of me, then it is a very little faith to say, well, yeah, he can take care of me, but he just must not care that much, especially when he cares for the flowers and the fields. I mean, we live in the perfect state to illustrate this because we can look around and, and we have natural beauty all around us. I'm not even sure that uh, the other 49 states in our union can understand this passage of Scripture because they're brown. Um, but uh, we can just go outside and everything we see that man has not made is beautiful. My favorite thing is clear days where I could see Mount Hood and I look at Mount Hood and it's like, man, if God made... That's so beautiful, and he takes care of Mount Hood, then obviously he's going to take care of me. It's just a mountain. It's a big chunk of rock, you know? I mean, we can look at the trees. We have millions of kinds of trees here, and it's like, man, God takes care of those trees. He's obviously going to take care of me. John MacArthur said this. Yeah, I'm going to give you two long quotes from John MacArthur because they really go to the heart of worry. You believe that God can redeem you, that God can save you from sin, break the shackles of Satan, take you from hell to heaven, put you into his kingdom, give you eternal life, but you just don't think he can get you something to wear and eat in the next couple of days. Pretty ridiculous. He goes on, and listen, somebody might say, well, worry is just, you know, it's a small trivial sin. No, it's not. No, it's not a trivial sin. I think probably 100% of all mental illness is directly related to worry and most of physical illness. Worry is devastating, but more than that, it isn't worry. It isn't what worry does to you. It is what worry, in effect, does to God because when you worry, you are saying, God, I know you keep saying that, but I just don't think I can trust you. And worry then strikes a blow with the word and the person of God. See, to me, worry is a monumental sin. You see, worry disbelieves scripture. And you can go around all your life and say, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe in absolute authority of scripture. I believe in verbal plenary inspiration of every word. And then just live your life worrying. And you are saying one thing out of one side of your mouth and something else out of the other. Because why would you go around saying how much you believe the Bible and then worry whether God's going to fulfill what he says in it? Our mount said worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Now here's the thing. I don't want you to worry about your worry. I've made that clear in this series. That's not my goal. I want this to be uplifting. I know that all of you, none of you, none of you, I should say, came here this morning saying, yeah, I'm not giving up this worry thing, you know? I mean, I'm just giving heart in my heart to this sermon this morning, and no way I'm... I mean, everybody came here, I, I think, going, I hope Chad says the magical thing this morning that's really going to break this addiction of worry that I have over my life. If you knew what was coming, if you didn't, you came in here thinking, I stressed, and I don't want to be stressed anymore. And so I don't want you to sit around worrying about your worry. That is not the point here. The point is that we can break worry by growing our faith. This isn't sit around and say, oh, I'm such an idiot for worrying and I have no faith. It's saying, 
increase your faith and worry will start to go away. Now here's the thing uh, that I want you to get. Um, the first part of this that's really, really important, what Jesus is saying, and I just want you to understand that worry decreases when we know that life will not cease. And when we understand that we're eternal beings and, and we start to consider that fact that God created us to go on forever and ever, we are eternal, we will not end, our souls will last for eternity, then it really helps us to have worry go away from our lives. It makes us more important than any other thing. It gives us a future that goes beyond all of this stuff. I mean, if you think about everything you worry about, eventually, if you believe that death ends us, then it's going to all go wrong in the end. If you worry about what you look like, well, you're not going to look good when you're in the grave. If you worry about how much money you have, you can't take anything with you. If you worry about how much people like you, you'll be forgotten in a generation. Nobody will like you anymore. Nobody will care about you anymore. If you're worried about your job, you're going to have it for, you know, 35 years or whatever, and then you're going to hopefully retire if you come to the estate planning event, and then you're going to just be like, well, that's over now. I mean, everything you worry about is in part connected to the fact that you're making this life a big deal and not thinking about the fact that we will go on for eternity. Worries de decrease when we know that life will not cease. But the other part of this is that the root of worry is unbelief. And when we have faith, we can find relief. And I think that the key, the essence of removing worry from your life is to grow your faith. And there are some people who are not Christians and you have no faith in Jesus. You have never placed your faith in Jesus. And I can tell you this, some of the principles that we are offering in this series, some of the tips that Jesus has given us for living a worry-free life can be applied, but you will never, ever, ever remove worry because you don't have the faith that it takes. In fact, you should, as I said a couple weeks ago, be worried because you don't have eternal life to look forward to. Your eternity that will go on forever and ever, will not be a good one if you have not placed your faith in Jesus. And what I want you to hear this morning is that the first step, the first step in removing worry, the first step in removing the guilt that you have in your life, the first step in removing the pain that you have gone through emotionally is to say, Jesus, I will place my faith in you. I want you to know that faith in something does not necessitate the removal of worry from your life. I want you to know that faith in certain things will not do anything for you. It is only faith in Jesus that can take away things like worry. It is only faith in Jesus that can give us a reason not to fear tomorrow. And you can sit around your whole life saying, I just wish I wouldn't worry as much. I just wish I wouldn't worry, worry this much. I just, oh, the anxiety and the, start with Jesus. But I know, and I've said over and over in this series that I am a worrier. And so I know that people that have even, even strong faith sometimes struggle in this particular area of their lives. In this area of their lives, they have little faith. And when it comes to worry, I think that we who are Christians, who have placed our faith in Jesus, we need to make a decision to place more 
faith in Jesus. We need to make a decision to say, Jesus, I am going to trust you in the big areas of my life, but I am also going to trust you in the small areas of my life. I will trust you with eternity and salvation and forgiveness, but I'll also trust you with my finances and my children and my retirement and what those people think of me. We need to say, look, I... Have you ever tried just to give something up? It's really hard. Have you ever taken a toy from a baby and not given them something else? It doesn't go very well, right? Like they scream and they yell. And I think that, that some, in some way this never leaves us in life. Like it, it doesn't matter when we get older. When something is taken from us, it, it's really difficult if something else isn't replacing it. I know, I'm always like, man, I'm too busy, I'd love a day off. And then I get a day off and I'm like, I gotta do something. You know, like it's just like something is missing. And when it comes to worry, I think that this is so true. I think that some people cannot remove worry because it leaves them fearful, as I said last week. And I'm not asking that you just remove worry from your life. I'm asking that you remove worry from your life and you fill it with something else. And that something else is a stronger faith in Jesus. I'm asking that you not sit around telling yourself, don't worry more. I'm asking that you sit around saying, trust more. You see, that is the big difference in what Jesus is saying. He said, don't worry a couple weeks ago in the passage that we looked at, and that's great, that's important. But now he's saying, hey, trust more. Have more faith. Grow in how much you believe the promises of God. You will never, ever, ever, ever remove worry from your life if you just try to worry less. You will not worry less by going out and saying, hey, the birds, they're always fed. And so I'm just going to worry less. It's helpful. It's a great tip, but it's not going to fix the problem. You will never worry less by looking at the grass and saying, that is so beautiful. God's also going to give me the clothes that I need and everything I need. Unless you say, I am going to grow my faith. I'm going to trust God in this particular area of my life. And we all have areas that we worry more about. Some people worry about germs. I don't care. You could lick an ice cream cone and I'll still take it from you. It's not even a thing to me. I worry about other things. Future of this church, whether people like me, our finances sometimes. Some of you, it's like, I don't care if I ever make another dollar. I kind of get by. Things are good, you know? I mean, but in the area that we worry, we don't need to just go worry less, worry less. We need to say, have more faith. Have more faith. Because again, and I want to say this and I want to ingrain this in your head, the root of worry is unbelief. And if you have faith, you can find relief. And here is the homework that I want to give you. The homework that I want to give you is to go home and find a promise of God in his word, the Bible. Find a promise and then say, I'm going to do my best to believe this promise this week. Now, if you want extra credit, I mean, if you want to go above and beyond, then go find a promise that, that applies to the very thing that you worry about the most. If it's sickness, 
and death, then find something that talks about eternal life and how you'll be taken care of. If it's finances, then find a passage that talks about how God will provide for you. If it's just kind of the future, then find something that talks about God and how he has a great hope and plan for your future. If it's just kind of overall, then I recommend Romans 8.28, but now you can't steal it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I mean, if you could just Take that and shove it in your heart and into your soul and say, man, no matter what, God's going to work it out for good. You would stop worrying. Now, again, I want you to go home. I want you to find a passage. You can't use Romans 8.28. These are the rules of the homework. And you can't use Matthew 6.25 through 34 because that would be big time cheating. And then you'd have so much more to worry about. Like, oh, I cheated and now I got to go to church next Sunday. And what if Chad asked? I mean, just go home and find a passage. That's what I want from you. And I want you all week to just remember that you can replace worry with faith in God. I want you to remember that you ought not trust your worry more than you trust the living God who has created and provided for you your whole life and who has clothed the flowers of the field and gives the birds of the air food to eat. Replace your worry with your faith and worry will begin to go away from your life. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to start, and I'm going to ask for hands this morning, which sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But uh, I'm going to start, and I'm going to say, you know, if, two things that I'll ask you to put your hands up for in, in one second here. If you're if you're a person that that is not a Christian, and you say, man, I've never placed my faith in Jesus, and and you're interested in placing your faith in Jesus, or or at least talking about it, and you go, man, that is what's missing from my life, and I have so much unbelief that I do feel worried all the time about the future and about death and about what people think and about these sins that I committed years ago, then in a second, I'll ask you to put your hand up. And, and if you're a person also that's, that's a Christian, uh, that this, this series so far has really just spoken directly to you, and you're thinking like, Chad, I really don't want to worry and I, I do want to replace my worry with faith, and, and I'm going to try to do that. And uh, then I'm going to ask you in just one second to put your hand up too, and I'll, I'll be in special prayer for you who do that because, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't just want to pray for everybody. I want to really pray for those people who, who are making an effort uh, who really want to remove worry from their lives and who this is really a difficult thing for. And so will you put your hands up if you fall into one of those two categories right now? Jesus, I thank you for those hands that want to take this this thing that that seems so normal and regular to the rest of the world. Oftentimes, uh, it's even described as good if you read blogs, Lord, and need it. But we hate it. And God, I think there's so many people out there that, that are accepting worry is just normal. And they think, wow, this is terrible that this is normal. And so the hands that just went up, Lord, in one way or another, they are saying, God, I want more faith. And I want this, this thing that just wrecks lives to be taken from me, to be replaced by something 
greater. They're saying that they want to learn to trust you, Lord. And God, I want them to learn to trust you. I want to learn to trust you more. And God, I am, when it comes to this, one of the greatest sinners. And I pray that we as a church family would not give in to the, the culture of worship, but Lord, we would give in to a culture of trust, a culture of faith, a culture of belief, Lord. Each of these individuals, God, I pray that this week you would lead them to the perfect passage of Scripture that would speak directly to the very things they're worried about right now. Lord, I want to thank you that you're so great that you don't just offer me eternal life someday, but you offer me eternal life now. You offer me a better life now. You offer me peace and hope and joy and trust. You offer that to each of us, Lord. Father, as one man cried out to you, Lord, about belief, help our unbelief. I mean, God, we, we do believe in you, many of us in this room, almost all of us, God, in this room, believe in you. And we believe that you're the savior of the world and that you care about us and that you created us in your image and that you look down and you have a special place in your hearts for us, God. But in certain areas, we're just crying out this morning, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.